Our scripture reading this morning for the sermon is from Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the the word word of our God God will stand forever. forever. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, Father, we ask that you would now turn our gaze. We want to pray from the psalm that you would open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do through Christ our Lord. Amen. We are working our way still through this uh, series in Philippians, and we invite you to uh, join with us. Actually, in many ways, uh, we pick up here where we left off literally. That is most often the case, but if there was ever an occasion for a part two sermon, it might be this one. Uh, as we enter into this text, as, you, as we read together, it doesn't take much to, imagination to see how this flows out of what Paul has just said, that where we were, what we were considering last week. And so that's where we are. I remember, uh, I remember being fascinated. I remember being fascinated as a little boy watching, sitting on the floor of the living room in front of a television set, watching pictures come to life. I was mesmerized and captured. Actually, uh, Walt Disney Studios had been doing this for years when I was a little boy turning drawings into living, action-moving pictures. And 80-something years later, Walt Disney Studios is still doing that. It's not just children, it's adults who are mesmerized and captivated by um, the animation that we see in film and television and, and even video games. Most of it now done by computer. But this animation was was captivating to me, but I could imagine that it was just, if not more, captivating to the people that had put that together, who had taken sketches and drawings and frames and and organized and manipulated it so that what was still became alive. That animation is something that 
continues to marvel us and uh, stagger us when something finite takes on a life of its own. I want to suggest to you that that's what Paul is doing. If the Apostle Paul is eager to take biblical truths and watch them come alive, alive in the lives of his readers. Taking, in this case, biblical principles and truths and watching them come alive in such a way that your life and mine is animated. So here's a question. What is it, friend, that animates your life? What is it that animates your life in such a way that 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 life endures and that life has a poise and that life has a joy? What is it that animates your life? For many in this world, the answer is, well, there's nothing that seems to animate my life very long. I'm doing what comes next. I'm making the best of what I can. And maybe at this stage in a pandemic, many of us are feeling that, that I'm just simply doing what I can and mustering the energy for another day. But sadly, for many people, their answer would have to be, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what it would look like for my life to be animated Paul's thrust of this passage is this, that when we see the gospel in all its fullness, when we see the gospel in all its fullness, our lives are animated with the kind of joy that sees us to the end. That's what he's doing before us. He he actually, as I mentioned, he's concluding a section that began last week, and actually he's concluding chapter 3 with these words. And when he does... He holds before us two groups of people. And then he comes back to one of those groups to unpack the mindset or the truths that form the mindset that animate their lives. And that's what he invites us into today. So I want to look at it like this. There's one way of living. There's another way of living. And there's a way of living that enables you to see this through to the end. The one way of living that Paul begins with is, is, a, is a way of living that is walking toward the world to come. We see that when he says, brothers, join in imitating me. He's identifying himself as one of those who is walking toward the world to come. That's what we considered last week, right? We saw that, that Paul himself is talking about his unwavering mind, his blessed forgetfulness and a strenuous effort, all because it's worth the prize of Jesus Christ. He says, brothers, and by the way, when he says brothers, he's talking to all of us, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. I love the way J.B. Phillips paraphrased uh, that very sentence. He says it this way. Paul says, let my example be the standard by which you can tell who are the genuine Christians among those about you. That puts some some handles on that for us. Now, before we get very far, it it may sound as if Paul's claim to be an example may seem to be a little bit vain. Look at me, Paul says. 
But in light, if you remember, in light of what he has just said in verses 12 and 14 above, you can look at, Paul asked them to follow his example, not because he has gotten there yet or achieved perfection, but because he is struggling in the same race they are running. Paul says, look at me. One of the ways of living is walking toward the world to come and watch me do just that, Paul says. He qualifies it in case you're wondering about Paul's attitude. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ or as I belong to Christ. Paul's unwavering focus is, is, is set before the people and he says, join in imitating me. You know, Paul is, is often eager to straighten out doctrinal matters, biblical truths and correcting misunderstandings. But here, his focus is on his apostolic display of Christ-like living. That's what he wants the Philippians to imitate. Watch this, he says, and follow me. But he goes on, the rest of that verse is, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So he's broadening it out to recognize that there's more than one example that's, that's necessary. And the reason that there's more than one example is necessary is because not any one person brings to the table or to the picture or to the screen, <laughs> to stick with our image, everything that it entails in following Christ. When he says those who walk according to example, there's a good chance that what he has in mind is Timothy. He's already talked about Timothy, whose proven worth we read about in chapter 2. Or Epaphroditus, his fellow worker, fellow soldier, and minister to my need, Paul says. So he, he likely has Timothy and Epaphroditus in mind, maybe others, but certainly those two. And he uses a word when he says, keep your eyes on, he uses a strong word. He says, notice them, consider them, look out for them, and keep your eyes on. It's a picture of the life, walking toward the life to come, walking toward the world to come. Parents are often considered and concerned about finding role models for their children. But parents, what about a role model for yourself? What about finding someone in your world who are not buying in to what the world is selling? What we see in the next negative examples that we're going to be, they're going to see in the next example that he gives. So one way of living is walking toward the world to come. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. Another way of living that Paul wants to highlight and recognize, he jumps right into, it reminds him that there are others that are not walking toward the world to come, but are trapped in this world alone. That's the next group of people that he cites. Look at verses 18 and 19. For many, and there are many, by the way, this is not one or two, there are many of whom I have often told you now, and even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
What Paul has in mind here as he turns to another example is we know more what to follow the more we know what to avoid. It's true in my life. It's true in yours. That conduct is the best index to the nature and the value of our belief. Show me a man's conduct and I can tell you what he believes. That's what Paul is saying at, saying here. Well, who are these people? Who are these enemies of the cross? Uh, commentators debate this. It's not very clear or evident from this. Some speculate it might be the Judaizers, those uh, who, ha- who he addresses elsewhere. He calls a group of people, you may remember, dogs earlier in this letter. It could be various itinerant teachers and preachers who make their way through Philippi. It was a small town on an east-west highway. Or it could be people in their own midst, pretenders. But regardless of who they are, they are known for a particular set of values and practices. And, And what Paul does is he lays out some very descriptive phrases for us to identify and explain who these people are. Notice this though. The issue is their walk, not in their teaching. He's talking about people whose teaching may be off. What he's addressing is what their walk looks like, trapped in this world alone. The first phrase he uses, he says, their God is their belly. Now that could include gluttony, but not necessarily limited to that. Probably more broadly, it's a, it's a sensuous self-centeredness. They're, they're devoted to their own self-indulgence versus self-denial, which is the way of the cross. They're devoted to self-indulgence. They've reversed moral standards. Listen to this. Their glory is their shame. They take things that should be shameful and parade those. Don't we see that in our culture? But they've also are a people who've cultivated in what, what we might call an earthly mind. That is, their minds are set on earthly things. They're more captured by the things of the world. They're more captured by bank accounts and video games than they are Christ alone. It may be that Paul is simply amplifying a, a a verse from Proverbs that he certainly would be familiar with. Proverbs 13, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So Paul has laid before us two groups of people, those that are pursuing walking toward the world to come and those that are trapped in this world alone. But as he does, I want you to note the the passion with which he does both. When he talks about this second group of people, he is not condemning them as much as crying over them. He says, it is with tears that I write these words. These verses are charged with considerable emotion. His tears, as he thinks of the enemies of the cross, would, would seem to preclude any thought of personal vindictiveness when he states that their end is destruction. It's a reminder to us who want to walk toward the world to come. How is it that we consider those around us who are trapped in this world alone? 
We want to correct every wrong, and rightly so. But it's important to notice that Paul weeps. That's a part of his approach and handling of those that are trapped in this world alone. It may be a burden. It may be that these are Christians who ought to know better. They certainly profess a faith in Christ, it seems. But Paul weeps. And when we get to this point, if we're reading along and following, we want Paul to say, to say more. We want Paul to say, but Paul, what is it then that animates your life? And that's what he does. He returns to that first group. That first group who are one way of living is walking toward the world to come. And rather, and, and unlike those that are trapped in this world alone, Paul answers the question and shows us how to make the first way of living yours. And that's to be anchored in the world to come while living in this one. Look at verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. There's one true home. You and I have one true home, friends. Our citizenship is in heaven. When we pull out our passport, for most of us, it says United States of America. And regardless of where we go in this world, that is our home and that is our identity. Until and unless... <laughs> we end up with another passport, taking up residence in another place. And what Paul is laying before the readers here is reminding them and us today that our citizenship, our one true home, is not in this one. That we are resident aliens. That our home is elsewhere. And that, and that home that is ours has a forming effect on us, doesn't it? The fact that, that this is our home shapes us in lots of ways. Some good, some indifferent, but they shape us in many ways. Our one true home is what Paul wants his readers to recognize. Our citizenship is in heaven. And the way to walk toward the world to come is to recognize that you are anchored in the world to come while living in this one. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world in John 18. And you know what that means? If it is his, neither is your kingdom citizenship of this world, regardless of what your passport reads. The one true home is heaven. The world that has broken into this world, which is why we can say not that our citizenship will be in heaven. That's true as well. But the citizenship that will be ours is ours. It's present tense. Our citizenship is in heaven. We've been transferred right from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We've, take, we've taken our home in another place, but we're living in this one. So the first thing that Paul says about how to, how to make the first way of living yours is to recognize that you have one true home. One. One true home. But he also says, we have one true desire. 
one. Because from that heaven, from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an eager waiting. He uses not the word eager here. He uses it in Romans 8, which we'll refer to in a moment. But it's, but it's, a, it's not a patient. It's a patient waiting, but it's an eager waiting. It's both. And, and we know, we've seen it, when the child is so eager for what is about to happen or about to be given to them that they can't stand to wait any longer. And that's a bit of the picture that, that Paul paints here, is an eager waiting. You know, this return of Christ, which is what we're about to ponder here. Our citizens, we await a Savior who will come for us. And that return of Christ is, is almost a forgotten part of our Christian faith, it seems. Maybe because it's overlooked because it's riddled with so many questions. That it falls into a category of, we'll figure that one out when the time comes. And what can we figure out? What has God said about that? But what Paul wants you and me to recognize the reality of that is is that there's an anticipation there. There's an eager waiting that we await a Savior. That's our one true desire. And then he goes on to say some things about this Savior. He reminds us that the Savior that we desire, our one true desire, upon whom we eagerly wait but patiently wait, is a complete Savior. This is the one who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Interesting, when Paul talks about the return of Christ, he he then answers a question that, that some of them are asking and all of us should. And that is, but what about this body? How does that work in this transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And one of the things that Paul is trying to drill home for us is that our one true desire is a complete Savior who not only preserves your soul, but will transform your lowly body to be like his glorious body. This is how he put it in Romans 8. It's not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. There it is where we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, it is sown when we die, it is sown, this is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. A spiritual body is what Paul lays in front of us in an animated kind of way, recognizing that, friends, that you and I will have a spiritual body perfectly suited to bear the weight of the glory of of perfect spiritual souls. Okay, are you wondering what that's like? Yes, we are. We're wondering what that's like. Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. All that power, Paul says, that we've just seen will take your decomposed body and raise it from the dead. No longer will you be sick or disabled or frail or mentally ill or addicted or weary or tempting or tempted, but rather it will be like his glorious body with new minds 
to expand it for, for new capacities of understanding, we will understand things we never thought to even wonder about. <laughs> Could it be that we would have new senses to see new colors, to hear new sounds, to hear what dogs hear? What, what will this glorious body look like? And, and as glorious and as mysterious as that is for us today, it will be true not only of us, but of our loved ones who are already with the Lord. We will know them when we see them, for there is continuity within that glory. And so it will be for us who love his cross and his coming. John Piper on this very notion says, don't over-spiritualize or under-spiritualize this. He says, you would under-spiritualize this notion of the body that will be yours if you thought it could be explained merely in the categories of physical, material reality that you experience now. It is not identical to what we have now. But you would over-spiritualize it if you thought you couldn't eat fish or be recognized by your friends after the resurrection. That was Jesus' account, an explanation in Luke 24, where he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And that's what you will do. If you belong to Christ by trusting in him, he will give you a new spiritual body and you will be recognized by your friends and you will eat and drink with him in the kingdom of God. Matthew 26. Our one true desire is a complete savior. But Paul goes on to say, that that complete Savior is a powerful Savior. All this he will do by the power that enables him, Paul writes, even to subject all things to himself. Now, I don't have to tell you that we live in a world where it doesn't appear that everything is subject or under the authority of Christ. At times it looks more like a runaway world. Maybe at this moment in time, more so. But there is one who sits on a throne and reigns. And while it doesn't appear that the world at this moment is under the authority of Christ, it would be wiser for us to marvel at the mystery of his ways than to question the scope of his power. Friends, we belong to one who is a complete Savior and a powerful Savior. And that animating power of that complete, powerful Savior, that animating power is yours now. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians. He talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That power is not in reserve. That power is not on the bench it's not in the next story, it's in this one. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. 
who were in this world, residents, aliens, walking toward the world to come. That power is yours. Paul writes in chapter 3 of Ephesians about the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. So do you see the animation? Do you see what Paul is doing? He's taking the lives that we live in this world, walking toward the next, urging us to consider the danger of being influenced by those who are being trapped in this world and saying to you, friends, that there's a mindset that is yours in Christ, taking these truths or if we want to think about it, these frames that have been drawn and sketched and now become alive in us through the animating power of the Holy Spirit to help us to see our one true home, our one true desire, because that power is at work in us. That power is being manifest now in this day, according to the Apostle Paul, in the preaching of the gospel, which he calls the power of God for salvation. There's where it resides. The power of God is through the preaching of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. That transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that's the power of the gospel. That's the spirit taking the word of God and driving it home into the hearts of the people of God for their good, for his glory. That power is also displayed in the suffering endured by martyrs facing persecution today. That's power. That's power to endure. That's power to walk toward the world to come, even in chains. And the threat of death, that's power. But it's also, friends, displayed in the daily faithfulness of the saints. Those ordinary daily tasks of making homes, of preparing meals, of raising children, of speaking words of kindness, of loving neighbors, of serving the world, of living the kind of lives that those outside the church would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on that day that he refers to. That's the animating power that Paul is laying in front of us. He concludes this, as will I, with one last frame, one last picture, and it's a picture of exhortation. He concludes with these words. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, a, a, a a set of words that's not paralleled quite the same way anywhere else in all of his letters. He piles up five distinct terms of endearment. My brothers, my beloved, my long for, my joy, my crown, before uttering the command or the exhortation. Paul is thinking of Christ's return when he addresses his readers. Listen to how he says it in 1 Thessalonians 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown? Do you hear those echoes? 
What is our hope, our joy, or crown, or boasting before the Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And then he issues the exhortation, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. Friends, after the command, stand firm, he repeats the term beloved to leave no doubt regarding his attitude toward them. And it's because we are in the Lord, and it's only, friends, because we are in the Lord that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we pursue the prize, remember, friends, that Christ returns. The Savior that we await, the, our one desire, the complete Savior, the all-powerful Savior, he comes for his prize. The bridegroom comes for his bride. And those are life-sustaining words. Hear these from the Song of Solomon. Arise, my love. These are the words we will hear. These words are the words we will hear when we await a Savior who comes for us, who will then transform our glory, our, our lowly body to be like his body the powerful one says to us, arise my love, my beautiful one, and come away. The winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flower appears on the earth and the time of singing has come. Arise my love, my beautiful one, and come away. That's who we are. That's who he is. And that's the animation of a life that pursues to the end. One true home. One true desire. A complete Savior. A powerful Savior. The bride has a bridegroom. Come away. Come with me. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Pray with me. Father, it is as you come to us in your word that you reveal yourself to us through your self-revelation. That we begin to see with the eyes of faith and as Paul prayed that the eyes of our heart are enlightened that we may know the hope, that we may see it. We may see the hope to which we've been called and to know the power of the one that is ours, our bridegroom. Lord, so work these things into us that we might live in such a way in this world that we would walk into our citizenship now knowing that we are residents of the world to come. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.